I'm Alejandro Soto, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, May 22nd, 2018. Today is also the 40th anniversary of KGNU, which went on the air on May 22nd, 1978. Coming up, we continue our interview with the authors of a new book that explains the amazing challenges of getting a spacecraft to Pluto. On July 15, 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft flew past Pluto. Because Pluto is so far away, it took nearly 10 years of travel for the spacecraft to reach that distant dwarf planet. And that was after a decade of work to get the spacecraft to the launch pad. Planetary scientists Alan Stern and David Greenspoon have written a new book called Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. The book the book tells the story of developing and operating the New Horizons mission. How on Earth's own Joel Parker is also a scientist on the New Horizons mission, and he had a chance to chat with Alan and David about their book. Last week, we heard the first part of this in- interview. In today's show, we present part two of that interview. We start with Joel asking the mission's principal investigator, Alan Stern, about the technology that enabled the New Horizons mission. I like how you mentioned throughout the book past space missions. You give nods to those, the history of space exploration that led up to New Horizons, and kind of like how you were just describing the spacecraft compared to others. In particular, the last exploration of the distant outer solar system of Uranus and Neptune was by the Voyager spacecraft. What struck you as the difference between the New Horizons and Voyager in the spacecraft and how the missions were run? You know, David worked on uh, on Voyager when he was a graduate student, and then uh, he was personally involved in New Horizons. Maybe he should take a shot. Yeah, well, you know, there's some obvious things about the way the technology improved since uh, Voyager was launched with, uh, you know, really early 70s technology um, because, you know, you don't use the latest technology when you launch something in 1977 or in 2006 because everything has to be proven and you know, it's you know you have to be conservative with what you can you can include. So so Voyager was launched with early '70s technology, and New Horizons was launched with you know early 2000s technology. So there's you know the cameras are much more capable, the computers are much more capable. You can pack much more firepower into a much smaller and less expensive package, which is great and essential because New Horizons had to be smaller and less expensive because you know, the funding climate was different and that the constraints were much more severe. But, you know, another factor is that both Voyager and New Horizons had this sense of being the first exploration of new worlds, which is, you know, a, a really exciting thing to witness and participate in. But there was a difference in that with Voyager, there was more of a sense that these were the first explorations, but we were probably going to be going back within our lifetime. So, you know, and certainly with Jupiter and Saturn, we've since sent orbiters to these places. With Pluto, now we do hope to go back because Pluto has turned out to be so just incredibly interesting that there's a growing movement to go back. But when New Horizons was on its way there, there was a sense really of a one shot. This is going to be our time to reveal this planet for all of humanity. 
And fortunately, the instrumentation was so much more advanced that the portrait you get from a single flyby of Pluto is incredibly rich compared to what we were able to do with Voyager. You know, just the details of the instruments, you know, thousands of times more uh, pixels, more, you know, more uh, information that can be captured in each frame of the spectrometers and of the, the cameras. And because New Horizons carried this uh, this telescope called Glory, this, uh, you know, this really capable uh, telescope, you could see um, details from quite a distance and you could see even the, what, you know, the, the non-encounter side of Pluto, the, the side that we did not get the close flyby of because Pluto rotates with a, a, a day length of 6.4 Earth days. You had to photograph the other side of Pluto from quite far out. But with this telescope that was on board, they were able to do that. So we do have globes now that have much of the surface of Pluto, even the side that we didn't go close past. So there were a lot of capabilities that New Horizons had, even with tiny size compared to Voyager, that were light years beyond what Voyager had. And that was great because it did have this sense of this is our chance to see what we can see about this Pluto system. We better do it all at once if we can. Yeah, you know, one of the challenges, and we bring this out from Chasing New Horizons, but one of the challenges that NASA handed us in this project was they, that they told us, um, you, can, you can do this. Uh, we finally got permission to go and, and build it, uh, but NASA only had about one-fifth of the funding that Voyager had. Uh, so we had a lot of challenges for how to bring the cost down and do it, kind of break the mold for how to do very distant solar system exploration much less expensively. And we achieved that. Uh, we managed to do that. And uh, uh, in the book, we bring out and it's kind of kind of nerdy, but there, there's a you know a chapter where we really describe the nuts and bolts of how, through ingenuity and taking some risks and so forth, we were able to to build it for two dimes on the dollar compared to Voyager. And uh, the end result being much smaller and lighter and less expensive, uh, but more powerful than Voyager in its capabilities very much mirrored, in fact, the revolution in computing from the Voyager days of the 70s to, to now as computers shrunk from mainframes to laptops and ultimately tablets, and yet they were less expensive and more powerful, even though they were much tinier. And New Horizons is precisely analogous to that, but in the spacecraft world. One other difference between the two missions, and this also has to do with the advance in computers, and this is something we try to bring to life in Chasing New Horizons was a big difference in the experience of being at the encounter of Pluto with, with New Horizons compared to the experience of being at a Voyager encounter. And that is now with the rise of social media and the internet, it was a completely different experience for the people that weren't there in the room. Uh, it was much more democratic in that Voyager, you had to be in that one room where that computer monitor was with the team to really see the pictures uh, at first and long before anyone else saw them on the newspaper or when National Geographic came out or a couple on the news. But it was it was not very easy for people that weren't there to share in the wonders of uh, the planets that Voyager was revealing. By contrast, with New Horizons, instantly the pictures as they came in were being put up on the internet and people were tweeting them and it was out there and there was this sense of participation by people all around the world and it was much more possible to share it widely and feel that sense of everyone being there at once. 
And that, that was a really cool part of the experience of New Horizons and a very 21st century aspect of this uh, first encounter with a new world that was not possible the last time we, we uh, went to new planetary places with Voyager. That's a really good point because it's that just didn't exist for those previous first encounters. And even though the the mystery of all you see is the mission control room back in the day and everything, New Horizons, through all the social media, was able to basically lift that mysterious veil and people could really see a lot of what was going on and experience it in real time, which just was phenomenal. The level of public excitement just like blew everyone away. Like, you know, the team was preparing for some level of response, and then it was orders of magnitude more than anyone had <laughs> dared hope for. Always plan for more. And Alan, I was just going to say, I appreciate what you call those nerdy details in the book of how to put together a mission under constraints. In some ways, you could see it as, you know, a, a user manual for the next generation of mission builders. You know, the, the Chasing New Horizons is um, an interesting book because a lot of it's a very human story of uh, people kind of working against the odds and having setbacks, but ultimately making a triumph. And part of it's a political story, but part of it's a scientific story, and it's part of it's a tech nerdy story. And David, who did the majority of the first drafts, wove that all together like a, a very complicated helix. Um, as we go in and out of the different parts of the story, that time and again, as we move from the late 80s through the 90s, and we get a competition and David and Goliath's story, and ultimately the New Horizons team wins, and then we have to build it racing against this clock, and then we fly it across the solar system, and just before we get to Pluto, we have this onboard malfunction just days away from flyby that almost jeopardized the whole shooting match, and then ultimately how gorgeous Pluto turned out to be and how scientifically important. It's really a, a wonderful job of kind of being four books or five books in one, in a way. It did really bring a nice uh, feel of the history. And as you said, weaving in a lot of stories, I thought there were a lot of interesting coincidences of events on special dates that are mentioned throughout the book. For example, the, the Pluto flyby on July 14th, 2015 was exactly 50 years after Mariner 4 had its closest approach to Mars in 1965. And that was the first spacecraft, was it, to photograph a planet other than Earth? That's uh, absolutely right. Two years to the day from the first photographs of Mars. And, and I thought a particularly poignant timing coincidence was that New Horizons crossed the orbit of Neptune exactly 25 years after Voyager 2 flew by Neptune, which, before New Horizons, as we said, was the last first encounter with an unexplored planet. So, David, Alan mentioned you were a student, a postdoc on the Voyager mission. Can you tell us about that moment, that event, the celebration that there was for the moment when New Horizons crossed the orbit of Neptune? Yeah, that was really neat. Uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's to Alan's credit that, you know, he, he recognized the significance of these, these anniversaries and sort of arranged forums, you know, for people to come together and um, celebrate and anticipate and mark these, these moments. Um, and that was neat because we had this gathering at NASA headquarters that was also um, broadcast out on NASA TV and can be found easily now on YouTube. Um, and, and it was really cool because we had a whole bunch of or, or several scientists 
who were students or postdocs on Voyager at the Voyager Encounters who had participated. Uh, people like Fran Bagenal, who was just starting out her career uh, on Voyager and then became a major participant in New Horizons and is one of the characters uh, you'll get to know if you read Chasing New Horizons. And Bonnie Birati and John Spencer and Jeff Moore, all these people that were young puppies <laughs> like, <laughs> like us uh, doing Voyager, who are now uh, scientists doing really important work, have uh, persisted in their careers, and who are all on New Horizons. And it was just a moment to take stock and have them remember what the Voyager encounters were like publicly and talk about their anticipations of the New Horizons encounter, which was coming up. And it had this neat intergenerational feel because, you know, we were also talking about our mentors who were sort of the gods of planetary science during Voyager, who had you know, been the, the senior scientists on that mission, and we were sort of these young scientists learning from them. And then uh, the the other aspect at this gathering was that Alan had arranged for a number of the very young scientists working on New Horizons now, who were, you know, really the next generation, who are being trained on this mission. And ho- hopefully in the future, you know, we'll be having events at NASA headquarters to talk about their fantastic missions and, you know, coming up later in the 21st century and reminiscing about the good old days when they were young scientists learning from the scientists on New Horizons. So there was this sense of passing the torch and the generations building upon each other, the scientists training the next generation and the spacecraft building on the heritage of the last spacecraft to uh, keep going farther into the unknown with, with new capabilities. I, I thought that was just a beautiful image of, like you said, passing the torch to the to the young puppies of this generation <laughs> who will become the explorers passing the torch a generation from now. And I love that connection of moving forward in exploration that I think is really echoed throughout the book. Alan, you alluded to the anomaly. And in fact, the book even starts with a teaser about the 4th of July fireworks anomaly. So what was that problem? And how did training and planning and other decisions help? Well, the problem itself, though, was that um, we had underestimated how much we asked the spacecraft to do in terms of uh, onboard computing activities on that particular day, which, you know, it was July 4th, so uh, we call it the July 4th fireworks for New Horizons. You know, you might ask, uh, geez, how could a team that had... uh, flown this spacecraft for almost a decade have made a mistake like that. But after all, we test everything on the ground-based simulator, which is a very high-fidelity model of New Horizons that we have here on the ground. And we test all the command loads before we put them up on the spacecraft. But in that particular case, the spacecraft was uh, busy trying to um, crunch some data, some pictures that it had taken of Pluto and its satellites at the same time that it was ingesting a big flight plan called a command load with all the instructions for how to do the Pluto flyby. And those Pluto images were sufficiently complex, more complex than we thought, because Pluto is more complex than we thought. But it took a lot more CPU cycles. And on the ground, we couldn't simulate what Pluto would look like because we didn't know what Pluto would look like. And uh, the combination of those two things was too much. The computer gave up. Uh, it uh, Its backup uh, took control. We lost communications with the spacecraft. And uh, the end result of that was that um, all the flyby plans that had been put up on the spacecraft over a period of many months, programs and files and so forth, uh, got erased. 
And here we were just three days from um, the final flyby, uh, close approach. And uh, on the ground, of course, we knew the moment that we lost contact that we had a big job on our hands. Fortunately, the team had uh, gone through a lot of mission simulations, uh, over 40 of them, in fact, uh, practicing things going well and practicing things not going well. Uh, we had uh, hundreds of malfunction procedures that we had uh, uh, developed over the years for things that might go wrong, including this. So with all that preparation, we were able to swing into action. The problem, of course, was that three days and the ticking clock to the start of the flyby made it almost a Herculean task to get everything done, particularly when you're working with a spacecraft that's so far away and every move on the chessboard takes nine hours for the radio signals to get all the way up to the outer solar system on board the spacecraft and to get, get confirmation as the radio signals come back that it worked. Light is fast, so but not fast enough. <laughs> it was very dramatic. And uh, uh, people were sleeping on desks and sleeping under desks and staying at work the entire time. It's a lot like that movie Apollo 13 uh, that Tom Hanks and uh, Ron Howard did. Uh, the scenes in the hallways at our mission control looked a lot like that. Uh, just with better clothing <laughs> compared to 1970. But uh, uh, the book does start off with that problem. It doesn't tell you how we fixed it. And, and you can uh, then the book fades back to the discovery of Pluto. And ultimately, as we're on approach, uh, you see how it all turned out. Well, you'll you'll have to see that in the book. It really it it's amazing, and it really does get right down to the last moment. And depends on so many interesting details of previous decisions, like you mentioned in the book, how an early decision to get an additional simulator running seemed a little over the top and unnecessary at the time, but became essential to get this load tested and sent up to the spacecraft in time. That was one of the fun things about this story, you know, just from a storyteller's perspective, is that there were a lot of, there were a lot of details that uh, became important later on. You have this sense of trying to plant seeds in the reader's mind. Uh, like at one point uh, in the story, Alan insists uh, that the team should have a backup simulator in case something goes wrong with the main simulator during this crucial time when they're having to do all the planning for the flyby of Pluto, and they wouldn't have time to do all that planning if they didn't have a backup simulator. And, you know, okay, you think, wow, he's being really hyper-concerned about accidents that could happen. But on the other hand, uh, well, you know, it sounds like a good idea. But then it turns out during this crisis that if they didn't have that backup simulator that Alan had insisted on, you know, years earlier, just in case they needed it, that in fact they, they would not have been able to fix the spacecraft on time and execute the flyby of Pluto. So there are a lot of things like that that sort of circle back and become important later in the story that, that get planted earlier in the story. All of that, all of we, what we've been talking about really leads up to getting the science, having the spacecraft work, all the instruments work, and getting the images and all those data back. So I'm going to ask you both, but starting with Alan, what do you see as the significant results from the mission or how New Horizons changed our view of the solar system? Well, I think in terms of the science, the biggest paradigm shifts were uh, in turning that point of light, Pluto, into a planet and seeing how complicated and diverse its surfaces from glaciers and mountain ranges to ice volcanoes, old and young terrain, to canyons and uh, all kinds of other bizarre geologies 
across the surface, the complicated atmosphere, all that. We learned that small planets, and after all, Pluto's only about the surface area of the United States, much smaller than the Earth. But here, this small little planet turned out to be as complex as worlds like the Earth and Mars. And that really knocked our socks off. And in fact, that's a big part of why we need to go back with the orbiter and study it in more detail and watch how it changes with time because it is so complex. The flyby just wasn't, it raised more questions than it answered. And it's also taught us that um, the other planets of the Kuiper Belt with names like Haumea and Eris and Sedna and Makemake and Ixion are likely to also be very complex and have a lot to teach us for planetary science in general. Whereas at the beginning, we thought of New Horizons and the exploration of Pluto as the first mission to the last planet. As the science evolved, as we were trying to get the mission and build it and fly it, we discovered that there are many more small planets out there in this distant region of the solar system. Then the flyby of Pluto turned out to transform New Horizons from being kind of the capstone, now we've seen this, to the opening salvo calling for more exploration of these worlds that dot the outer solar system and that just beg scientifically for flybys of their own and coming back to Pluto with a orbiter mission. And so, David, same question to you. You're, you have more of an outside perspective, but you've worked on other missions. You work maybe a little more on the interior part of the solar system, but also as an astrobiologist. What are your thoughts about the significant results from this mission scientifically or culturally? Yeah, well, you know, my specific science is about comparative planetology, which is what we all do in some sense. And we find that we, we learn more about how planets work in general when we get to know a new planet. And, you know, that feeds back into all kinds of important things, including understanding how our own planet works, which obviously right now is, is a very important thing for humanity to know. And there's this persistent thing that happens when we explore entirely new places in the solar system, which is that our expectations are always exceeded in a particular way, which is that we always think that new kinds of worlds are going to be less interesting than they are because we have these sort of geocentric perspectives. When we first got to the moons of Jupiter, really with, with Voyager, you know, we thought they would be sort of cold and dead because small worlds are like that. But they're vibrant and alive and full of activity because we didn't anticipate, in that case, the tidal heating that, that resulted from being in orbit around Jupiter. So, you know, we assume that the rules that we know from, from our home planet apply elsewhere. And then they never do. And, and, and when we got to Pluto, again, as Alan says, the first exploration of a planet in the Kuiper Belt, of which we now know there are other planets out there. Again, you know, a lot of us expected it to be less active and less varied and complex than it is because, well, not only is it far from the sun, but there's no huge tidal source like on the moons of Jupiter. So why would it be active? Uh, but, of course, we get there and it's incredibly active and, you know, just alive with flowing nitrogen glaciers and evidence of climate change and varied surface terrain, so varied and interesting that people have taken to saying Pluto is the new Mars, <laughs> you know, <laughs> meaning it's like it's this new place in the solar system where there's just so much active terrain and interesting interaction between the surface and the atmosphere that it's going to take a long time to, to figure it out. So, you know, once again, we learn that the universe has just all these tricks up its sleeves to make different kinds of worlds interesting that we didn't know about. And it's not because we learned new laws of physics. 
after the fact, we can come up with theories and say, oh, yeah, nitrogen with this much heating from below, from radioactive decay, it will convect. And, you know, we can come up with the theories to explain why the why the surface of Pluto is churning. But we're never smart enough to anticipate. So it's through exploration that we learn how things work, not through just theorizing and without data. And and time and again, we learn that. And now we've learned that this small world on the fringes of the solar system is as interesting and active, you know, really as, as any other planet. And that is just a paradigm shifter and, and something it's just, you know, been a privilege to, to live to see. I find it so interesting that no matter, we have very, very smart people studying these things and working these things, but the universe is always more imaginative than we are. And I think we definitely Absolutely. find that out every time we explore a new place like Pluto. There's still this huge treasure trove of data, even though we have these beautiful results. Scientists are still pouring through the data, writing papers. And Alan, you talked about going back, a Pluto orbiter, you know, all these other ideas to learn more about what we briefly saw. But for New Horizons in particular, what's next? It flew by Pluto, dumped all the data, said so long and thanks for the fish and moved on. What is it doing next? <laughs> Well, New Horizons is out exploring this third zone of the solar system called the Kuiper Belt. NASA approved a five-year extended mission in which we use the spacecraft as an observatory out there using telescopes and cameras and other sensors to study other worlds in the Kuiper Belt. We have a, more or less an astronomical observatory in the Kuiper Belt that's speeding through the Kuiper Belt. And currently, the spacecraft, which is very healthy, full of fuel, got power to run for 20 years into the mid or late 2030s, is targeted for another flyby, not of Pluto, but of a small building block world, a building block of planets like Pluto. Uh, this flyby is going to take place, get this, a billion miles farther out than Pluto. It's going to be a record setter. No exploration has ever taken place so far from the Earth. And it'll be on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day this coming year as we uh, enter 2019. Uh, lots of press will be there as we set these records, and uh, then it will take us a year and a half to download all the data because uh, the distance is just so great. And after that, we'll look for new flyby targets and uh, do more exploration with the cameras and telescopes because New Horizons is the only spacecraft to have ever explored the Kuiper Belt. And it's currently the only one it's ever planned. Unless we get another mission to go back out there, this could be it. This could be all that we learn for decades to come or even longer. So we want to really squeeze everything we can out of this resource called New Horizons while it's in the Kuiper Belt for the next five or eight years. And the New Horizons team is hard at work every week and literally every day to do just that. It's really a great story. And David and Alan, I really appreciate you being on the show and sharing a little of the inside of the story of chasing New Horizons inside the epic first mission to Pluto. Thanks. Thanks very much for having us on. Thanks, David. And thanks, Alan. Thanks to Joel Parker for that interview with Alan Stern and David Grinspoon about their book, Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. This week's show was produced by myself and engineered by Chip Granditz. Additional contributions by Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. 
Visit our website at howonearth.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Alejandro Soto.